Hey guys, it's Chris here with a disclaimer before the episode. I wrote and scheduled this episode before the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, so if you're not in the mood for a story where a court of white men condemned the lives of innocent women, I'd probably suggest skipping this one. There will always be another episode in the future, so I hope you'll join me then for something that hopefully doesn't hit too close to home. So just do what you need to do. Relax, try not to let your mind dwell on the bad things. Life will get better, because it it just has to. So feel free to jump off the episode here. If you still want to listen, then let's get on with the show. Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're exploring a period of American history where fear of the unknown and different, as well as just general extremism, ran rampant. The Salem Witch Trials. While witch hunts have been a thing since, like, the beginning of humanity, during about a year's span in the colony of Massachusetts, over 100 individuals were accused of witchcraft and punished for their alleged crimes of cavorting with Satan. But these trials weren't conducted by the average citizens of Salem. Several important politicians were placed in charge of a court of law that used their power to allow public fear to take control. So let's take a dive into who these individuals were and how they let things get to the place they did. Also, up front, I'd like to say that almost none of the people in this story who were convicted were actually practicing witchcraft. That being said, witchcraft itself is not something that needs to be connected to ideas of demonic magic and other superstitions that made us end up thinking things like D&D were tools of the devil. I know people in real life who dabble with witchy things, plenty of time it can be connected to modern day neo-paganism. But that's it for my spiel. Support your local witches, they probably make really nice candles and will sell them to you. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the town of Salem in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in early 1692 in Judgment Day. In the background history lesson, let's take a look at accusations of witchcraft in the early modern period. Because witchcraft was being tied to the devil, should it surprise anyone that this all began with the Christian church? Well, here's the thing. Up until the late middle ages, so around the 13th century CE, the church denied the existence of witches and witchcraft. They played it off as pagans being pagans. There was no such thing as magic, only divine miracles given by God and the saints. This began to change starting with the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, a friar of the Dominican order who is now revered as a saint. In his studies, he concluded that magic is only possible through God, so any human being using it must be working alongside the forces of Satan. In 1233, Pope Gregory IX established a new group of church inquisitors in Toulouse, France that were led by the Dominicans. This group quickly developed into zealots that wreaked havoc on the public. They were the first major group to engage in the type of witch hunts we'll be covering. We'll fast forward to the 15th century now. Witch hunts had continued sporadically, but people were beginning to wonder why the church had not actually issued any official doctrines condemning witchcraft as a real threat to the public. 
After all, the then-canon law, the canon Episcopi, was still insisting that witchcraft was just a figment of the imagination. Countless people began writing in opposition to the canon Episcopi, hoping to make the public aware that there was a threat to their well-being. One of, if not the most important of these works was the Malleus Maleficarum, in English Hammer of the Witches, a book written by a man named Heinrich Kramer in 1486. Using the somewhat new invention of Johannes Gutenberg's printing press, Kramer was able to print many copies of the Malleus Maleficarum and spread it throughout Central Europe. It's actually believed that Kramer wrote the book because he had failed to get a witch hunt together and was chased out of the town of Innsbruck in modern-day Austria. In the book, Kramer stated that women were more likely than men to engage in witchcraft. That seems to be to this day why the term witch is more commonly linked to women than men. After all, the English word witch derives from the Old English word wicca, which was masculine. It actually wouldn't be until nearly a century after Kramer's book was published that witch trials really reached their heyday. For a brief while in the mid-17th century, Europe was ablaze with accusations of witchcraft. But with larger-scale accusations came skepticism over the whole practice. So soon enough, witch trials in Europe, mostly Western and Central Europe, began to fade over time. But that fear would be able to take root elsewhere, such as Northern and Eastern Europe and the newly established colonies in America, especially among the most religious. And speaking of the most religious, let's briefly talk about the types of people living in Salem and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Most of the settlers who came over in the early to mid-17th century were part of a group called the Puritans, who in modern time would be considered the basis for the stereotype of the American pilgrims. These were a group of Protestant Christians in England who sought to rid the Church of England of all Catholic influences. Though Henry VIII had split from the Catholic Church nearly a century before, the Puritans believed the Anglican community had not done enough. Well, the people of England, especially King James VI and his successor Charles I, were not too fond of this growing religious group. In order to escape persecution from the British Crown, the Puritans, especially the group referred to as the Separatists, left England to find safety in the Netherlands. Soon after that, in 1620, they had the great idea of moving to the New World. It was in America that the Puritans believed they could have their lives of following the word of God and Jesus while also retaining their English heritage, which is mostly why they left the Netherlands. The first Puritans crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower and established the Plymouth Plantation, which would eventually be the start of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. From there, they quickly got the New World experience by suffering through a harsh winter, having half of the population die, and having to navigate living among the Native Americans. It was not much like the cozy stories of love and friendship Americans are spoon-fed in elementary school, but the Puritans soon found a way to survive. Survival was not always easy though, especially with the nearby French colonists and the Native Americans always existing just on the peripheries, sometimes leading to armed conflicts with the local British colonizers. And as the actual colony was given legitimacy, there came more changes with an official government being set up. The Puritans were being set upon on all sides by people who did not share their beliefs. What was a village of God-fearing people like those of Salem supposed to do? in what would happen when they finally snapped.
February of 1692, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, aged 9 and 11 respectively, were just two regular young girls living in the town of Salem. Betty was the daughter of a local minister and Abigail was her cousin. Betty's father, Samuel Paris, had recently moved himself, the two girls, and a slave he owned named Tichuba from the port town of Salem to the smaller neighboring town of Salem Village. Betty and Abigail were said to have been very interested in Tichuba's culture. Tichuba was of the Kalina people, an indigenous group living along the northern coast of South America, and had ended up in Barbados where she was sold as a slave to Samuel Paris. Some people think that she was a practitioner of voodoo, which is an actual religion by the way, and taught some of the rituals to the young girls and their friends. This led Betty and Abigail into becoming very interested in the art of divination, magically trying to predict the future. At a certain point, the two girls started acting strange. They would convulse as if having a seizure and crying out. Unsure of what was happening to his family, Samuel Paris brought the two young girls to a local doctor. As a doctor in the 17th century, Dr. William Griggs made the very scientific and medical diagnosis of bewitchment. Soon afterwards, other young girls in Salem Village began experiencing similar behavior to Betty and Abigail. The town was thrown into a panic. Who had done this to their daughters? When panic was at an all-time high, Betty and Abigail finally began pointing fingers. They accused three different women. Sarah Good, a poor woman whose husband had lost all their money to debt creditors. Sarah Osborne, another woman in financial trouble who was also not involved with the local parish, a big taboo for the Puritans. And Tichuba. The three women were arrested and brought to trial for their crimes. The judges presiding over the original court hearings were John Haythorne and Jonathan Corwin. Both men were born in Salem to English immigrants. Haythorne's father was a military major who held many different political positions during the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Corwin was the son of a wealthy merchant and shipbuilder. Both Haythorne and Corwin would go on to become merchants and served as magistrates for Salem, a magistrate being a civil officer or a lower level judge who are only temporarily in the position. So yeah, these guys weren't really judges, but more of just members of the community put in charge because they were respected. Given that the entire situation was crazy and would continue to grow crazier as time went on, I guess it only made sense that technically real judges weren't involved. The two men overheard the cases of the three accused women. All the while, the girls of Salem began accusing others of bewitching them. Both Good and Osborne begged that they were innocent. Originally, Tichuba also denied any involvement with witchcraft. After spending time in jail, Tichuba eventually confessed that she was a witch and began her own round of accusations as she named other witches. Notice the audible air quotes there. As cases began piling up, including the arrest of Elizabeth and John Proctor, two of the more famous accused, Haythorne and Corwin realized that they would need more help, so they called in aid from the higher political powers of the colony. The man who came to their aid was the acting governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Thomas Danforth. Danforth was a politician with a strong pedigree. 
like everyone else, his father had been an important man in the early days of the colony. After inheriting his father's estate, Thomas would go on to become the treasurer of Harvard College, which yes, is that Harvard. It's a very old school. And he would also help oversee colonization efforts to move into the modern state of Maine, which back then was considered part of Massachusetts. He was a very conservative politician who was an early political leader of independence from the English crown. During King Philip's War, King Philip here referring to a Native American leader and not a European monarch, Danforth sought to protect the native population who had converted to Christianity, a group that was being targeted as a scapegoat for the attacks of the non-Christian natives. After the war, he was made president of the Massachusetts territories in Maine where he helped found several towns. He was eventually elected as the deputy governor, a position he still technically held when he was called in to help with the Salem witch trials. At one point he made a bid for the gubernatorial position but was defeated and re-elected as deputy governor. All of this was under the reign of King Charles II. Well, in 1685, King James II ascended to the throne of England and began shaking things up in North America. He created the short-lived Dominion of New England, which included many of the northern Atlantic colonies in America and removed everyone who had previously been in power, Danforth among that group, replacing them with his own people. Well, like I said, the Dominion of New England didn't last long because neither did James II. Three years later, in 1688, James II was deposed and replaced with King William III, aka William of Orange, and Queen Mary II. With new leadership over the colonies, Thomas Danforth was restored as deputy governor. A new governor would eventually be coming to the colonies, but in the meantime Danforth was running the show, which is how he ended up as the man running the Salem Witch Trials. But that all changed with the arrival of the new governor a man by the name of William Phipps. Born in 1651, the classical history story says that William Phipps was born into a humble background in Maine, again then part of Massachusetts, with nothing. This story is untrue as Phipps's father was allegedly from low to mid-level English nobility. One of the Lord Chancellors of Ireland at this time was also said to be Phipps's cousin. Nothing humble and poor about that. Nonetheless, he was from a massive family with 13 siblings. But even with whatever money they might have had, young William was illiterate for most of his youth. At the age of 18, William took on an apprenticeship as a ship carpenter, beginning a lifelong relationship with sailing. After four years, his apprenticeship ended and William decided to move to Boston, where he was educated and learned to read and write. A year after moving to Boston in 1673, William married Mary Spencer Hull, a widow who had inherited a massive amount of money from her deceased husband. Throughout the rest of the 1670s, Phipps owned and operated his own shipbuilding company. The call to adventure found its way into William's heart and he spent much of the 1680s sailing around the Caribbean Sea looking for treasure in sunken Spanish ships. In what was a right place at the right time moment, Phipps happened to be sailing to England to get funding to continue his sweet new treasure hunting gig just as the Crown was looking for someone to help lead an expedition. 
After gaining an audience with King Charles II, an impressive feat for someone of Phipps's position, he was placed in charge of a 20-gun frigate named the HMS Rose of Algiers. Phipps continued his treasure hunting while also kinda being a part of the British Navy, a job even Phipps knew he was not supposed to be doing. Nevertheless, Phipps managed to strike gold quite literally when in late 1686, he and his crew found a sunken ship off the coast of the island of Hispaniola. After months of excavation efforts, Phipps's crew managed to haul out 34 tons of sunken treasure worth around 205,500 British pounds. And that amount is in 1686 pounds, which is about 34 million pounds in 2022, or about 43 million US dollars or 40 million euros. For that grand haul, most of which would actually go to the British crown, William Phipps was knighted by King James II and made the position of Provost Marshal General, essentially the Chief Sheriff, of the Dominion of New England, because that was the current political structure of the time. From this point until he was named the new governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Phipps spent several years in the military fighting against the French and Native Americans in Canada. Even though he had been recognized as a local hero for his achievements in the Caribbean, his military expeditions were incredibly lacking. It was also around this time that Phipps befriended a father and son named Increase and Cotton Mathers. Yes, those were their real names, Puritans were weird like that. Increase and Cotton were both reverends and helped lead Phipps into a new spiritual awakening something that would become incredibly important as he became entrenched in the Salem Witch Trials. Increase Mathers also helped Phipps speak with the newly crowned rulers, William and Mary, about creating a new charter to dissolve the Dominion of New England and restore colonial rule to the old leaders. King William and Queen Mary eventually agreed to dissolve the DNE in late 1691, and William Phipps was chosen as the new royal governor of Massachusetts. By the time Mathers and he returned to Boston in May of 1692, the witch trials were in full swing, and Phipps was compelled to oversee the hysteria. In order to create a system of law and order within these dangerous new times, the governor called for the creation of a court of Oyer and Terminer. usually temporary courts convened in order to overhear criminal cases. The court of Oyer and Terminer conducted in Salem in 1692 is perhaps the most infamous of these political hearings. By the time the court convened at the end of May, 62 people had been convicted of witchcraft. Only one person had died so far, Sarah Osborne who had died in jail. One of the first cases the court heard was that of a woman named Bridget Bishop, who they judged guilty of the crime of witchcraft. And for real, one of the reasons she was considered a witch was because she wore all black. I know that when most people think of American pilgrims slash Puritans in their head, they think of people wearing black, modest clothes, but the Puritans actually wore very colorful clothes. She was hanged eight days later. But who was the man who ultimately decided Bridget's fate? William Stoughton the facts surrounding his birth are relatively unknown. No one is sure if he was born in England or America, just that he was definitely born in 1631 and his parents were definitely set up in Massachusetts by 1632. He began adulthood by pursuing a path in theology in order to become a Puritan minister. 
He graduated from Harvard and then continued on to Oxford in England to continue his education. He served as a minister in England for a while until Charles II was brought into power and started cracking down on the Puritans. From there, Stoughton returned to America. He preached for a little longer here and there, but Stoughton decided that his new passion in life would be in the field of politics. For 15 years from 1671 to 1686, Stoughton served on what would be the precursor to the colony's governor council, as well as a couple stints being a representative for the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the New England Confederation, which was a loose organization between the few colonies that made up New England in order to ensure the protection of the Puritan church and its people. Stoughton also made quick friends with several other politicians who were not very popular with the people of Massachusetts Bay due to their lukewarm position towards the Massachusetts Bay Colonial Charter that granted a fair deal of independence to the people living there. These men would eventually receive political positions when King James II created the Dominion of New England. Stoughton also received elevated political positions during this time. So by the time the Dominion was dissolved, despite the fact that Stoughton was actually all for its dissolution, he had become pretty unpopular in the public eye. His only saving grace was his friendship with Increase Mathers. So when Mathers and Phipps traveled to England to seek a new colonial charter, they also carried a letter of recommendation that Stoughton should act as Phipps's deputy governor. When the governor returned and found the colony of Massachusetts at Trainwreck, he replaced Thomas Danforth, the old deputy governor slash acting governor, with Stoughton as the new chief magistrate of the Court of Oyer and Terminer. Now that we've met the major players of the Salem Witch Trial, let's actually jump fully back into the story. Bridget Bishop was the only person executed during the first month of the court's existence. Over the next three months, 18 people were hanged. Seven more accused died in prison awaiting sentences, and an elderly man named Giles Corey, one of the accused, was executed by being crushed to death under heavy rocks. The court looked for advice on how to judge its proceedings fairly, so they turned to the reverend's Mathers. Cotton Mathers wrote a list of eight points for how to conduct the court in a way that honored God while ensuring that witches were punished. All of it can be boiled down to witches are beings of Satan and should be punished thoroughly and with extreme prejudice, but do make sure that you don't punish people who are actually innocent because that would not be good in the eyes of God. One of the associate judges, a man named Major Nathaniel Saltonstall, actually quit because he believed that Cotton Mather's letters to the court allowed too much leniency when it came to matters such as spectral evidence. What is spectral evidence? I'm glad you asked. It's evidence that is based on supernatural circumstances. It might be a witness's story about how they had a vision of the accused witch. Sometimes the young girls who had been suspected of being bewitched were allowed into the courtroom during the accused's trial, where they would seize up or show other signs of being cursed while the person accused of witchcraft took the stand. There was also the touch test, where it was believed that if the accused touched one of the convulsing girls and the young girl was cured of her afflictions, that meant the accused was a witch and had ended the enchantment. All in all, it's complete nonsense that is definitely not real evidence. And yet, William Stoughton still allowed spectral evidence to play a key part in his convictions. 
around 79 people were given guilty sentences based on spectral evidence alone. When Increase Mathers learned that spectral evidence was becoming the main source of evidence, he sent word to the court to change their ways. With less reliance on spectral evidence, less and less individuals were being found guilty of witchcraft, and yet the court still continued. It was not until October, however, that William Phipps decided to intervene and conclude the reign of terror of the court of Oyer and Terminer. Some sources even suggest that Phipps felt compelled to step in because someone had accused his own wife of witchcraft. In January of 1693, Governor Phipps convened a new court called the Superior Court of Judicature, and Stoughton was once more positioned as Chief Justice. This new court was banned from accepting spectral evidence, and just like how we now have less Bigfoot and UFO sightings now that we have better phones, not allowing spectral evidence saw a drastic reduction in the number of people who were convicted of witchcraft. And when three people were actually convicted of witchcraft, Phipps stepped in and offered the accused pardons. The Superior Court would continue hearing cases from throughout the colony through May until, after basically everyone was either proven innocent or pardoned, Phipps once more stepped in and shut down the court, ending the Salem Witch Trials for good. But what happened afterwards? Mass hysteria had been allowed to flourish in the Massachusetts Bay Colony for over a year. Around 25 people had died as a result of the trials, 20 of those actually being executed and the others dying in jail awaiting sentencing. Throughout the following decades, the families of the dead would petition for a reversal of their loved ones' sentencing, though few would actually see the results. But what of those in charge? Phipps and Stoughton actually became enemies due to how the trials were handled in the latter half of things. Stoughton had been all in on spectral evidence, so the governor denying him the right to use made-up stories to further wrongly sentence people was a major blow to their relationship. The governor's handling of shutting down the trials also led to a fracture between him and the two Mathers reverends. Phipps sought to return to order with the military, but the shame of his fumbling with Salem hung over his head and made others wary of his judgments. He would get into two physical altercations with naval officers over the next year which would ultimately lead him to being recalled to England by King William of Orange in late 1694. He was arrested in England in January 1695 for crimes levied by political enemies in the colonies but Phipps would end up passing away from a stroke before being able to plead his innocence. And as for Stoughton, the man in charge of the trials, he would go unpunished by his contemporaries. In fact, he would remain in political power as lieutenant governor and take on a role as acting governor up until his death in 1701. And the other names mentioned in this story? Jonathan Corwin, one of the original two judges, would become a judge that sat on other courts in the colony. His home is actually still standing in Salem, the only structure still standing from the time of the witch trials. John Haythorne, Corwin's co-justice, would choose a military path. He is actually the great-great-grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of The Scarlet Letter. Thomas Danforth, Stoughton's predecessor as lieutenant governor, actually sat on the Superior Court. 
He helped some of those who were accused reintegrate into society by offering them land. Yes, in the end, it was only the man who stopped the trials that would be punished. So, I bet you may be wondering what actually happened to instigate the events at Salem. Even if some of the accused confessed to being witches, no one involved was actually magical. There's a few theories behind it all. The first is that the girls were actually poisoned, though not intentionally. Medical historians suggest that the town source of rye was infected with the fungus Claviceps purpurea. This is a fungus that can be used to make the drug LSD, as well as the cause of ergot poisoning, which can cause convulsions in those affected. Others point to a wave of mass hysteria caused by the general strife of the times. King Philip's war against the Native Americans had seen ruin and death fall upon New England. Perhaps the trauma of the war and living in its aftermath manifested in mass psychosis throughout the town. A final theory suggests that the girls of Salem were simply playing a game that went too far. Abigail Williams and Betty Paris were interested in voodoo based on stories from Tichuba. As they were just kids at the time, maybe they didn't realize that this game would have real consequences. But once things really started going wild, other children joined into the game and grew hungry with the power that the attention brought them. When things really started going haywire, adults also began joining in on the blame game and accused political rivals and societal outcasts. And despite Phipps's best efforts to exonerate those that had been accused, many people were still listed as guilty by the time everyone involved had died. In fact, even with memorials being erected during the 20th century, it wasn't until 2001 that the governor of Massachusetts signed a bill retroactively reversing sentences made against the women accused of witchcraft. And yet somehow one name still remained. It wasn't until May 26 of 2022, which fun fact is during the time I'm writing this episode, that a woman named Elizabeth Johnson was finally proclaimed innocent by the Massachusetts State Senate, thanks in part to the efforts of local middle school children. So hey, maybe teaching children the actual history of your country is a good idea after all. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going to return to Ireland to finish up the story of Brian Boru, who we covered back in episode 27, so give that a listen if you haven't yet. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.